Cool. Cool, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I am here to guide humanity through this time of great change into a higher vibrational reality on Earth. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. We needed a shepherd like you. I'm just trying to provide the inspired information, you know? Tools for conscious living, if you will. Does that make sense to you, Peter? No, I'm now worried that I had some great oversight (laughs) with my research (laughs) on this episode. You know, not everything needs to make sense, guys. Just, like, release your control on life. (laughs) Okay. Oh, Oh, he's just a guru. Yeah, he's our guru. Yeah. I'm whoever you want me to be. Now I'm starting to... I'm worried you're Charles Manson. (laughs) I promise you there's no need to worry. Or you're that AI bot that was Jeremy in our group chat a few <laughs> weeks ago that's freaking me out. I've been Jeremy's AI bot this whole time, Peter. I thought you knew. <laughs> All right, Jeremy, please go. I'm just getting scared here. Please uh, okay, <laughs> please take over. Well, I'm co-host Jeremy, and you should be scared, Peter, because I'm mad at you. I don't, I don't like this episode at all. <laughs> I don't like that you're trying to sneak Morrissey into our podcast. Yeah, I I really kind of am sneaking Morrissey into the podcast here. Oh, no, I was just joking, but you seem serious. <laughs> well, you know how Jeremy feels about Morrissey. Every week he goes on it half hour rant about how much he hates Morrissey then it gets edited out every week but (laughs) we still have to hear it it's funny I was actually when I was at a New Year's event this New Year's I said something like negative about Morrissey and this guy like across the room it's like turns and like flashes this look at me and I was like oh no and it wasn't like a look of anger it was like a look like I hurt him like deeply by just saying something about Morrissey. I don't know. Was that the first time he's ever heard a negative critique? <laughs> That's of what I was like. <laughs> like. I thought this was just known at this point, but <laughs> he, he that guy Jeremy, I got to tell you, he's just fed up with have, he's defending more he's the leave Britney alone of the yeah. 2020s. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Well yeah, I am co-host Peter Cook, <laughs> and the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Ooh, that's that poem, isn't it? That's, what is that poem? That's Robert Frost. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it connects to, ever so slightly, the album that I brought today, which is A group called Smith by the band Smith from 1969 on Dunhill Records. 
Not the Smiths. No, not to be confused with the Smiths fronted by... Morrissey. Yes. <laughs> yes. I had that in my notes because at one point, Smith were the Smiths. <laughs> oh, they were the original, the Smiths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, this was released in July of 1969, and it reached number 17 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums. So it was a big seller. And that is thanks to... The first song we're going to play, their version of Baby It's You. Big hit. We're talking side A, track five. You guys want to hear the most mildly controversial opinion ever sure i'm not sold honestly <laughs> okay i think that that version of baby it's you is by far the best version even better than the shirelles original and also better than the beatles <laughs> can i say something more controversial please do i recognized almost every song on this album which most of them are covers but didn't recognize that song like you didn't you didn't know it in any form yeah <laughs> i mean given that you're not a beatles fan it doesn't surprise me that you wouldn't have heard their version but the shirelles is pretty popular too yeah i don't i don't know that one missed me well sean i don't know if it's that controversial of an opinion to have because the general public Seems to feel that way, too. Of course, that, that song... That's why I said it was the most mildly <laughs> controversial opinion ever. 
That song was written by Burt Bacharach and Luther Dixon, the music, with lyrics by Mac David. Luther Dixon was also a producer who helped create the signature sound of girl group The Shirelles, who originally recorded that song. And the, the, the Shirelles was a moderate hit, but Smith, this version that we just heard is the highest charting version of that song. It reached number five on the Billboard Hot 100 in November of 1969. So, yeah, everyone seems to agree that that one is the definitive version of Maybe It's You. I agree as well. (laughs) Because it's the only one you know. (laughs) Yes, and I'm sure it's better than the Beatles. It was used in Quentin Tarantino's You're just going to let that one go by, huh? You're not even going to try and fight You know what? I am done. (laughs) I'm not going to fight you on this Beatles thing. I'm not going to waste my time doing it. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Enough people have fought about the Beatles over the years. (laughs) Like Everyone can just have whatever fucking opinion they want about the Beatles at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to change the fact that the living Beatles are much, much richer than we will ever even possible true (laughs) amen you're on the same side there but yeah that was used in quentin tarantino's 2007 feature film death proof which of course was part of the double feature he did with robert rodriguez they build it collectively as grindhouse yeah how do you guys feel about the grindhouse movies by the way did you see him you know i did see them i saw them in the theater back in 2007 and I don't think that I had enough knowledge of the whole grindhouse genre, subgenre at the time to fully appreciate what they were mimicking. It was still a fun experience, you know, because they had there's Planet Terror by Robert Rodriguez. Then they had several fake trailers in between that and Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. So it was still a fun cinematic experience. How about you, Sean? How did you feel? It sounded like you may not be sold on them. Well, so I saw them in theaters as well. And you said 2007 is when it came out. Mm -hmm. So I would have been like 18. And I just thought it was the coolest shit ever. Like, I thought the fake trailers were so funny. I thought both the movies were so cool. And I know I rewatched them a few times shortly after that, but I haven't revisited in forever and i just feel like anytime i hear them referenced by any like film podcast everyone's just like "Ugh, weren't those fucking terrible it's like i thought they were good when i was 18 but i haven't revisited so i'm curious does anyone else still like those movies yeah let us know it i'd buy that podcast at (laughs) gmail.com jeremy do you have any take on this well i also saw that in theaters because I mean, all of us were kind of the target audience, I'm sure, for that when it came out. Yeah. And I remember, like, it being fun and enjoying it, but I've never even thought about watching those again. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I've seen the full cut of Death Proof because I I think both of those were truncated versions of the the full film that they had intended for the the, double feature. And so I know I've at least seen Death Proof maybe a couple times since then. I don't know that I've ever watched the uh, Planet Terror again since the the theater, but yeah, it could be maybe uh, at some point all three of us will have to sit down and watch Grindhouse together. All right. (laughs) Bonding experience. Podcast bonding outside of doing this. 
<laughs> I love it. We'll meet in Pittsburgh, watch the Grindhouse movies, and then go back home. <laughs> well, so going back to the fact that this was a cover of an already popular song and hit bigger than it ever had you know, when other artists had performed it, it's much more soulful than previous versions of it, the, this arrangement. And, you know, that's obviously, as you heard, the, the vocals there are just phenomenal. Gail McCormick, the vocalist for Smith, it was just kind of out of this world with her ability to just, she was just a born star, effectively. And unfortunately, aside from this song, <laughs> never really uh, got to become that star. And we'll get into why that is. But how do you guys feel about this song or, or just this album in general? Did you know much about it prior to me saying that I was going to have this be the selection for this week? So I've seen this record around forever and I feel like I listened to it once or twice real early on and just, it didn't grab me and I've never revisited it. I've, you know, bought and sold it, seen it in tons of bargain bins and just like haven't given it any time as of late. So it was cool taking the deep dive again with you recommending it. And I was very impressed. I don't know. I don't know what I wasn't hearing before if I ever actually played this all the way through, but there's some really great material on here. And yeah, Gail McCormick, I mean, at this point, I'm convinced she's one of the like all time great unheralded vocalists. She's amazing on this record. Yeah. I mean, she's the star of the show for sure. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost a wonder that the other members bothered to sit, take lead vocals on some of the songs. <laughs> yeah. And that soul influence, especially in her vocal style for me is what really makes this a great record. Like you take that away and you've just got a very forgettable generic psych records, like pop record, you know, but like everything she contributes and all that R and B influence to the rhythm and the vocals is really what just pushes this over the edge. Yeah. I will back up pretty much everything you're saying i knew nothing about this going into it the songs gail sings i enjoyed a lot and the rest of them i felt fine about but they didn't do much for me i to be honest though i recognized most of the songs so it was you know an enjoyable listen but yeah definitely the ones where gail sings stood out above the other songs. Yeah, well, and we'll, we'll start with her. We'll start with Gail in the story of Smith, or a group called Smith. Gail McCormick, born November 26th, 1948, in St. Louis, Missouri. She shares a birthday with Tina Turner, one of her major vocal inspirations. Uh, other influences of hers include Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight. I think no surprises there. In high school, she sang high soprano with the Suburb Choir, which was a large choral group that performed annually with the St. Louis Symphony. After high school, she joined a St. Louis band called the Classmen with a K, who released a few singles between 1967 and 1968. That's got to be, that gets my vote for like the most unfortunate usage of switching a c to a k for no reason like you just read it and you think it says the clansman yes that (laughs) jesus yeah it it was uh in retrospect not the soundest choice yeah (laughs) and it was in 1968 that gail was singing with the classmen when she met guitarist rich clyburn born in 1943 in enterprise alabama 
as well as Jerry Carter, a West Virginia-bred bassist. These two musicians had performed a gig with the Classmen in St. Louis when they were touring through as the Smiths. <laughs> yes, yes, they were part of a group called the Smiths at the time. They had met while playing around the music scene in Downey, California. Do you guys remember which previously featured artists were in Downey, California? And I'd buy that for a dollar. Mm, I do not. Downey, I don't even know where Downey is. And I lived in California. <laughs> like Los Angeles area. It's Oh, one of those yeah. fake cities that are just actually LA. <laughs> it was the Carpenters. Oh, okay. They relocated from Connecticut to Downey. So uh, Rich Clyburn and Jerry Carter started a garage rock trio in 1966 called The Trippers, which is a hilarious name for like a psych garage band. But they infused R&B and country influences into their garage rock sound, recorded a couple singles. And in 1968, Rich Clyburn and Jerry Carter began working with a producer named Ron Budnick, uh, now they were started calling themselves the Smiths, of course, as we've established, not to be confused with the 80s band fronted by Morrissey. I wonder if he sued them for using the Smiths name. I mean, if he could do anything shitty, he will, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, they released a single on Columbia as the Smiths called Now I Taste the Tears, which actually sounds like it could be a song by the, the, the smiths <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's a yeah it's a slow bluesy folky kind of eerie song but it has a tasteful arrangement to it, it, it kind of in the fashion of uh ode to billy joe and both uh rich Clyburn and jerry carter toured the country as the smiths on this single performing with pickup bands all throughout the country. I guess they were kind of doing networking on their own. Just, you know, they had this Columbia single, but they were, you know, using pickup bands, getting musicians in the town that they were playing in to be their backing band all over the country, which I imagine in the late 1960s would be a lot of work to arrange. And Yeah, wow. And I, I imagine much like we're you've alluded to with this band that they were probably doing a lot of covers songs that people might be able to learn and just like, Hey, we'll be performing these songs in this key, learn it in that key when we come through your town. But I thought it was interesting that they were touring that way, these two musicians. And when they were seeking a supporting act, when they came through St. Louis, Missouri, they were directed to the classmen featuring, of course, as we've established lead vocalist, Gail McCormick. And, the Smiths weren't having much success getting their single played on radio. And in the soulful vocals of Gil McCormick, they heard what they were missing in their band and they asked her to join them. And it just so happens that Gail was in the middle of trying to make a career decision at this time. She had been on the path to become a physical education teacher and had received an offer to teach PE at Arkansas State College. She was trying to figure out if she wanted to stick with music or go the other route. And then this Los Angeles band comes through St. Louis, Missouri, asks her to join them. And I think the decision was obvious for her at that point. So back in Los Angeles, the Smiths reformed as the singular Smith, or I should mention that 
it seems like a lot of the band feel that they were a group called Smith. Like as the album is named here, they seem to refer to themselves as a group called Smith as their proper name. Now, it seems the company was billing them as Smith, but who knows? Regardless, they were a group called Smith either way. Yeah, they're Smith on Discogs. Yeah, I know that by their second album, they were definitely just Smith. So it's one of those things that's kind of up in the air as to at what point it changed. <laughs> Gail McCormick became the lead vocalist for most of the time, and the band soon caught the attention of pop musicians Del Shannon and Brian Holland in a North Hollywood nightclub called the Ragdoll Club. Now, I'm guessing we know the name Del Shannon, Michigan's own Del Shannon. He, Of course, you know, everyone knows the song Runaway by Del Shannon. You want to sing it for us, Peter? <laughs> I'll spare the audience that right now. Okay. But I'm wondering if we, do either of you know, know the name Brian Highland? Does that ring any bells? Um, he did the song Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Poked Out Bikini, oh, correct? You are correct. Did you know that just by his name? No. I, I mean, I knew that he was like responsible for a song like that, but I couldn't remember which one it was. I had to look it okay, up. Okay, okay. You, you were already on the ball. <laughs> yeah, because like that's the song he's famous for, but you see his later 60s LPs in the bargain bin a lot more, like Tragedy a million to one things like that and those are like pretty cool records actually yeah i in looking just the little bit i looked into him in researching for this i was like i'm intrigued i gotta see what else this guy is about i mean you know del shannon's a very respectable musician he's got some great material outside of his few songs people know yeah one of my favorites from that time period of rock musicians yeah so del shannon helped secure smith with a full band through his connection to drummer Bob Evans, as far as I can tell, no relation to the restaurant chain. Uh, Bob Evans is actually a native of Jackson, Michigan, as we've established Del Shannon's home state. Uh, and rounding out the lineup, they recruited Tulsa, Oklahoma keyboardist Larry Moss on the B3 organ. So on the album cover, if you you know if you either have a copy of this album or you want to pull one up online, from left to right on the cover, we have. Bassist and vocalist Jerry Carter, then primary vocalist Gail McCormick, and then organist Larry Moss, kind of back in the shadows, and in front of him, drummer Bob Evans, and on the far right, guitarist, vocalist Rich Clyburn. So Del Shannon oversaw the group's development at this point, allowing them to rehearse at his house. He introduced Baby It's You to their repertoire of covers and rearranged it to fit their style especially gail's voice and this is what got them signed to abc dunhill which this album is produced by steve barry i believe he got some mentions on our hamilton joe frank and reynolds episode some time ago because that was also on abc dunhill and he had produced that he uh, steve barry co-wrote barry mcguire's eve of destruction and johnny river's secret agent man the horns on Baby It's You were arranged by Jimmy Haskell, famously the arranger of the uh, Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, the arranger of the, the incredible arrangement on that song. And so in July of 1969, their debut album, A Group Called Smith, was released, consisting of covers of popular songs that had made up their live show. 
And let's get to another one of those right now. Let's hear their version of Let's Get Together, written by Chet Powers, a.k.a. Dino Valente of Quicksilver Messenger Service, we previously have discussed on this podcast. Of course, this song was originally a big hit for the Youngbloods. And this is this is the opening track on the album, right? Side A, track one? Side A, track one. Yeah, this is a kind of a powerhouse album opener for Gail McCormick. Yeah, long fade in too. Brace yourself, listeners. I was reading that when this first, when this group first started getting played on the radio and you know before people picked up the album saw the band on the cover or started seeing them on television on programs like Ed Sullivan and American Bandstand many listeners thought Gail McCormick was black. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, her style is uh definitely derived from a lot of big black female singers. Yeah, Tina Turner Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. and she, and she she does a phenomenal job at capturing that spirit. Yeah, I found that that take was very fiery and very kind of antithesis to the original of that song. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, the the Young Bloods popular version. <laughs> yeah, which is very mellow, like hippie vibes to me. So I was I wasn't sure how I felt about it by the end of it. As, as far as what what it does for the song itself. Yeah, it felt kind of like like the performance is better than the original, but like it kind of stands in contrast to the message of the song itself. There was it's interesting how uh, radical some of these arrangements are. Uh they do the zombies song Tell Her No, but they do yeah. it, of course it's Tell Him No. Yeah. I think I had listened to this album like twice before I realized that it was that song <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's so different from the original yeah after listening to it i was reading a little bit about this album and i was like there's a zombie song on here i missed it yeah yeah they they definitely you know shifted up the arrangements in a lot of cases like they weren't just doing straight covers and you know why would you bother when you have a powerhouse like gail mccormick so the same summer that the album dropped in 1969 a group called Smith's version of The Weight by the band was included on the soundtrack to the counterculture classic Easy Rider because the original by the band, which was used in the film, couldn't be secured for licensing to include on the album version. So it was actually uh, Rich, Rich Clyburn, who sang the lead because they, when asked, like, so why did you sing the lead on that uh and he's like, well, I knew all the words <laughs> to the way. <wait. laughs> oh. So they just had Gail on harmonies on there. And so that, you know, it was on a very popular soundtrack. But it was, you know, for one thing, it was filling in. It was a substitute for the band's original on the soundtrack. And it just didn't get, unlike a lot of the other songs, which became very popular in connection to that movie. It didn't really because uh, I think it just when they didn't use Gale, listeners weren't really as interested in the group when they didn't put her on lead vocals. Yeah, it doesn't sound like they put their heart into it if they pick the singer by, well, he knows the words already, so. (laughs) An inspired choice. Yeah. And unfortunately, this was the height of their success. The band quickly began to fall apart. Gail McCormick reportedly suffered a nervous breakdown after bassist Jerry Carter... Uh, he had been involved in a dying tryst with the singer at the time, and he supplied her with LSD in a desperate attempt to reconnect with her. Not a cool way to try to save a relationship. Mm-hmm. No. And Gail McCormick ended up having to go home to St. Louis to her mother to recuperate after suffering this nervous breakdown right at the peak of the album's popularity. You know, it's still on the charts, and mm. the singer is you know having to take some time out their star you know the thing that makes the band uh the dunhill label heads were furious and insisted to rich clyburn that jerry carter be let go and when clyburn refused both founding members were cut loose by the label Hmm. boom just like that i I mean yeah some really fucked up decisions on (laughs) their and the band's part but, yeah. you know, it, it's just, yeah, really ugly, really quickly fell apart. With new members, Smith did return in 1970 with a second album called Minus Plus, which it featured more original material uh, and it had some real standout songs. 
as well as some minor chart success, but nothing that came close to the success of Baby It's You. And by 1971, the band had folded. Gail did release three solo albums in the wake of a group called Smith. But other than the hit song, It's a Cry and Shame, which was written by Dennis Lambert and Brian Potter, who the team that we discussed on our Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds episode, because they wrote uh, the big hit, Don't Pull Your Love. Other than than a hit with that song, didn't have much chart success. Uh, Gail married in 1973 and moved to Hawaii. But by 1976, she had separated from her husband and moved home to St. Louis and retired from the music business. She lived out the rest of her life away from the public eye until she passed away in March 2016 from cancer. And none of the other members really continued to make music on the national stage, although some did continue to play on a more local level in various places that they ended up. Bob Evans was the only one, the drummer, he was the only one to remain in Southern California. And he and Rich Clyburn are the only surviving members from the lineup on this album. So, yeah, it's a real unfortunate short run. And I, you know, Gail is especially interesting because it seems that she just kind of naturally had this quality to her. Like that she had this, the vocal talent. And just if you watch her perform, I I checked, she just, she had a star quality to her. She just had it. And I think that's what they, you know, ABC Dunhill saw. And I think they, they thought they had like the next Dusty Springfield. But the group just was never, I think, marketed right. And just obviously, as we can see, had some serious internal struggles. There. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think Gail really, as we mentioned, she was almost considering going a different route with her career at the time that she was asked to join the group. And I think uh, she didn't really seek that celebrity or fame. I think she was a very down-to-earth person. I mean, the fact when uh, Jerry Carter had told Bob Evans that he was, you know, he, he and Gail's relationship was falling apart and he was going to have, you know, try to turn her on to psychedelics, Bob Evans was like, no, you're going to, that is going to mess her up. She is small town person with, that she's not like some far out, you know, like she, she wasn't part of this counterculture, so to speak. She, and, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. She just, uh, obviously it's kind of like Bobby Gentry. She hid from the public eye for the rest of her life mm-hmm. after this yeah. brief spell with comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, really, really fascinating. I diving into this group more and more, you know, you don't, you go in knowing nothing about them. I've always found this uh, this album kind of enigmatic. I've seen it a lot. I think you had uh, suggested it as a recommended album on a previous episode at one point, Sean. Uh, mm. But I don't remember what it was for. You said, mm, like, you don't remember that, Sean. <laughs> I don't. Like I said, I couldn't even remember if I'd actually listened to this record before yeah. or not. Yeah. It feels like so. one of those what-if bands. There's a lot of promise there, you know, that maybe could have gone it seems to me like if they had like a really good songwriter in tow and like moved into their own original material it really could have gone somewhere with you know a singer like that yeah and it's worth mentioning or if they didn't have like an abusive band member maybe they could have gone somewhere yeah (laughs) yeah it's worth mentioning it sounds like 
uh, it might have been Bob Evans. One of the members said that he felt like Del Shannon quickly got cut out of the picture from the band after he initially helped them get some success too. And I don't think that helped them any. Mm. And so, yeah, lots of bad decisions. It feels like I would like to play a song that Rich Clyburn sings lead on just to, as an example of what the band sounds like when Gail is not singing. And this is, I don't believe I believe side a track two. I remember when your love was light A bright sunny day But the last time I saw the sunshine Seemed so far away And all the while I believed you cared Believed you shared The love and everything you said guitar that comes in in the breakdown and kind of the arrangement overall that kind of shows to me like that that vocal is kind of forgettable frankly yeah yeah it's definitely not the standout part of the track no it really sits back in the track a bit which i don't know could be okay but like the song itself felt kind of poppy but didn't have enough going on for it to carry it without you know something carrying the track yeah as far as i could tell although it was written by a songwriter outside of the band it i think it's original to this album it's not a cover of a popular song yeah that was written by a guy named jeff thomas who released i think like six five or six 45s of his own and was kind of a swampy 
R&B pop rockabilly kind of guy. But uh, this is the only time that another artist covered one of his songs and he didn't record this song himself. So I don't know how that arrangement happened, like how this band got a song from Jeff Thomas and no one else ever wrote one of his or recorded one of his songs. Yeah, might have been one of those deals where, you know, like struggling up and coming songwriters just pitching songs to producers. Yeah. This was his one shot and it didn't work out. Yeah. And this was released as a single and didn't have much impact because, as we've established, radio listeners wanted Gale. Yeah. And that song has some cool elements. Like, I enjoy the kind of muddy gospel sound and influence you hear a little bit in there. And I think the. You know, we said the lead vocals are not great, but the backup harmony vocals, I think, are the, the highlight of the song. Yeah. Yeah, this album, you know, the, the, the even when uh, in some cases where maybe, you know, Gail should have been singing the song, there's still some great vocal elements going on, some fin- fantastic musicians and, and singers yeah. in this band. It, and this is pretty much, you know, other than the, the Jimmy Haskell's horns, his arrangements here and there, this is the band you know, this is a group called Smith performing everything. This is pretty much what they sounded like live. And I got to say, like, a pretty darn good sound for it being the band. I mean, when I listened to it, I kind of assumed that it was probably mostly studio musicians. I was impressed that it's just them on the record. Yeah. Yeah, they were top-notch players. Well, that feels feels like you covered Smith pretty well. Sean, do you have another direction to take this? perhaps recommended similar albums i do what a coincidence i prepared that for this episode just in case anyone thought to ask me at the end so here we go the first one that came to mind is a group called cold blood have you guys ever heard of that band is the band called a group called Cold Blood, or is the band called Cold Blood? <laughs> it's an endless, bitter debate. <laughs> no, I have not heard of Cold Blood. Yeah, Cold Blood's another dollar bin band. Their debut self-titled album from 1969 is the one I'm recommending, same time period. And they were another group that kind of towed that line between psych rock pop and actual funk music some of their stuff is like really funky maybe reminds me a little bit of like chicago in that kind of way too but even funkier than any of that stuff cool second recommendation a group called fever tree (laughs) stop doing that (laughs) (laughs) their self-titled record from 1968 peter do you remember fever tree oh i'm trying to place it offhand i can't say i do they're a site group that has, again, some kind of surprisingly funky elements and one song that was notably sampled on Mad Villainy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And when you hear it, it's pretty unmistakable. Okay. And then my last recommendation, one that we've f- featured before and an artist that has been mentioned on this episode, Quicksilver Messenger Service and their album Quicksilver from 1971. Yeah, definitely with some of the psych mixed with the soul influence, I could hear that. what I liked about that album. I liked about this album, too. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you, Sean. Those are some great recommended similar albums. And before we get out of here, I do want to give a huge thank you to music historian Corey Fry for his piece, Tale of a Group Called Smith 
which, you know, if you just go to the, the normal websites that you might think when you're initially doing some research, like Wikipedia or all music, you know, when you're looking into a band, neither of those sites had very much information on a group called Smith. <laughs> there was very little there. And it was, especially once I started reading Corey Fry's article, I realized that it was kind of scattershot as far as what information was included. So he had, you know, in very recent years published this extensive article that he put together. It's the most comprehensive piece on Smith that's available. So I suggest checking that out if you're interested. There's a lot that I didn't get to mention on this podcast. So once again, Corey, Corey Fry's Tale of a Group Called Smith. Excellent. Thank you, Peter, for bringing this record. Yeah, this was a, a fun one to dive into and just listen to more. I, I had bought this in Philadelphia when I was visiting Sean a few months back amidst, you know, 30 other records. And it's one that, I yeah, like I said, I've seen it. I always thought the cover looked cool and it looked like something I'd be into. I knew the baby, it's you, but I hadn't spent too much time with it yet. So yeah, and just, I should say, those Gail McCormick solo records, there is some phenomenal stuff on those as well. Uh, I mean, she really had it. She just was born to sing. Yeah, I'm definitely keeping an eye out for those from now on. Yeah. Yeah, she could do it all. Just any style that they threw at her, she would knock out of the park. So, yeah. Well, that's all I have. I think it's time to get out of here. We were going to depart with the final song on the album called I'll Hold Out My Hand, written by Chip Taylor and Al Gorgani, originally by The Click. Yes, and I listened to the original by The Click. This version's better. Yeah. Smith did it again, just killing these tracks, putting their own stamp on it. And I also want to note that I pick up a distinct Booker T and the MGs vibe on the backing track here. Oh, yeah. Keep an ear out for that. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, Gail makes this her own. All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for spending some time with us here at I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We'll see you next time. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. <laughs>